the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is an American actor, film director, producer, writer, and comedian who has so many credits, I I, I can't even begin to list them all. He's won 12 Emmy Awards and uh, one Grammy Award. And uh, you've heard uh, some of his work in our comedy spotlight on this show, but he has a new book out called I Remember Me. I remember him, and you will, too, Carl Reiner. Mr. Reiner, how are you? I think I'm all right, and I'm so upset that you left out one of the... He's looking right at me now, the uh, Mark Twain Award. I oh. got that. You didn't even mention that, and he's my favorite person in the whole world. I'm terrible at taking notes, <laughs> and and my memory is is a little bit... Well, it's not as good as yours. I read your book earlier this week. And and I was absolutely delighted, and and it made me think of a thing, a, a memory of my own that involves you from the old Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Oh, and yeah. see if I remember this correctly. Did you do a facial impression of the picture of Dorian Gray? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was, you know, as a matter of fact, believe it or not, I think that might have been the very first thing I ever did on television in 1948. You know, uh, it was we would it was a visual medium. We used to be the radio was the thing until we had television. Sure. And when I went on television, I said I got to do something visual, and I did a twelve-second impression of Dorian Gray's photo in the in the uh, attic, turning from a handsome man to a uh, a gargoyle. <laughs> and and uh, this would tell oh, you know I'll do it for you right on the radio. Oh and, yeah, it's such yeah, a good bit for radio. I'll, make, oh, I'll try to make sounds. <laughs> oh, here's the, there's a handsome man first. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> that was it. That, that was, was it. it. That's the thing. that I've seen that bit. And, and regularly, I mentioned the Grammy Award, uh, uh, regularly play the bit that you did with your, your good friend Mel Brooks, the 2,000-year-old man, which uh, spawned a bunch of albums. And, and I remember... Um, Reading uh, Alan Sherman's autobiography, and he talks about how he used to do his song parodies at parties. You, you and Mel would do that bit at parties, and and much the same way as what happened to Alan Sherman happened to you. Somebody said, "Absolutely, you got to record fact, this." The first time I saw Alan Sherman was at a party where he sang "Hello, Mother, Hello, Father," and somebody said to him, "You got to record this," and that's exactly what happened to you and Mel. Somebody said, "You have to record this." And it was, there were some very strong voices who said that. The first voice was George Burns, who said, he said, 
is that on record? When he heard it, he said, is there a record of that? And we said, no. He says, you better put it on the record or I'll steal it. <laughs> and Edward G. Robinson was at one of the parties we did. We were like command performances. These people would make parties and invite us just to do it. And Edward G. Robinson said, I want to play that thousand-year-old man on Broadway. Make a play out of it. I said, it's a 2,000-year-old man. He said, I could play any age. <laughs> and I, and I, love that, I love that line, and, and that's, that's in your book, I Remember Me, which is really kind of, a, it's, it's, it's a memoir, really. Oh, yes. Well, it's, it's my life uh, uh, filtered through my brain. Well, and, and your memory is uh, impeccable, and, and the detail that you go into and in some of the stories you tell was really a delightful read, especially for for me as as a fan of comedy and, and just, just reading the accolades in the front of the book and the people who, uh, you know, give you credit for inspiring them or boosting them or working with them somewhere along the line, the likes of Billy Crystal and Steve Martin, Mel Brooks, Dick Van Dyke, Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, it's a who's who of, uh, you know, the last 50 years in comedy all crediting you. You know, it's funny. I, I, you know, friends will do that for you. Uh, they won't be. Uh, they were. I, I knew they were sincere because they called me after and said, by the way, what we said we really meant. <laughs> but I love the fact that after all these lovely accolades, Mel Brooks, my best friend, said the best. Said the best. He said, um, uh, War and Peace has always been my favorite book until now. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> that was. To me is, that, that is a funny quote. That's a, that's, a, that's a great line. Now, I don't know how many of my listeners will know about the significance of, of the time you spent with uh, the Sid Caesar shows. Oh, well, the Sid Caesar show was my college, my comedy college. Because I, when I went to, the, to do the show of shows, I had started doing comedy. I was doing, you know, I've been on Broadway, do, did some comedy. But um, the writing of comedy, I had written, you know, sketches, not sketches, stand-up for myself. And in the Army, I wrote a sketch for myself. But the quality of the writing on that show, there has never been any better collection of writers. And going, starting right from the head writer, Mel Tolkien, Mel Brooks, Larry Gelbart, um, uh, uh, Joe Stein, who wrote Fiddler on the Roof, and uh, adapted my book, Enter Laughing, into a play and then a musical. And so these writers were real, deeply talented and funny writers. I mean, uh, nobody in the world ever made a joke faster than Larry Gelbart. I mean, he was just a human, a human joke machine. We used to call Maury Amsterdam that, but this guy really, you, he didn't need more than one word as a straight line to get a, to get a, a, a repost out. And so being in that room for actually four years for show of shows and another five years with Sid Caesar on the Sid Caesar show, nine years of being uh, um, being a part of that group, it was it was a learning process. Well, anybody that's that's looked back at that show has to be just knocked out by the success that the writers from that show have had. I mean, you mentioned Joe Stein and Fiddler on the Roof, but Neil Simon and uh, Larry Gelbart, if people don't know that name, went on to create MASH. Um, and, and Mel Brooks, he's, he's, you know, he's had a hit or two. And um, Larry Gelbart also did Tootsie. I oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. 
Um, and and I, I can imagine that was a college kind of thing. And what I've never been able to figure out, now you later created the Dick Van Dyke Show. You made reference to uh, Maury Amsterdam, who was uh, uh, brilliant in that, as was Rosemary and, and Dick Van Dyke and uh, Mary Tyler Moore, the whole cast. And, and even that, that guy who played, uh, oh, what was his name, Alan Richard Brady. Dixon. No, Alan Brady, the guy who played oh, Alan wait, Brady. Oh, Alan Brady. <laughs> I know. That's a moi-mem, moi-mem. No, Richard Deacon was great. Yeah. No, that was, uh, that was the best six year, five years of my life, actually almost six. Um, it was a, 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 one of these things that happen once in a lifetime where you're able to do exactly what you set out to do. And I couldn't believe that. I, was, I, I had written... 13 episodes of a show called Head of the Family. When After the show of shows was over, I was asked to do situation comedy. They were now no longer doing variety shows. There was, it was the year of the horse and the gun. There were a lot of westerns that year and situation comedies. And so I was offered a few, and they weren't terribly good. And my wife said, why don't you write one? And, you know, <laughs> and I said, I never wrote one. And I said, and this is absolutely true. I recommend it to everybody. I talked to myself, I admit it, and, and I was talking to myself. If you, by, my theory is if you're a fairly intelligent person and you ask yourself out loud a fairly intelligent question, you may get an intelligent answer. <laughs> and I was on the West Side Drive in New York going home from downtown to, to New Rochelle, and I actually said, Reiner, I called myself by last name, I didn't want to get too familiar, I said, Reiner, what piece of ground do you stand on? I actually said those words that nobody else stands on. You know, even twins in a crib, identical twins, one is looking out the window and the other is looking at a picture of an uncle on the wall. They're getting different experiences. No two people have the same experience. I said, well, my answer was I live in New Rochelle, a wife and a child. I work in New York doing a variety show. When I go to work, I talk about my home in New Rochelle. When I go to home, I talk about my work with Buddy and Sally and, uh, I mean, Maury and, and Dick and Mary. And and that became the Dick Van Dyke Show. And I it became head of the family. I wrote 13 episodes, and I did a pilot with a girl named Barbara Britton, Morty Gunty, and Sylvia Miles playing the other parts. And it was okay. I was okay. It was okay. It didn't sell, and I was now in a writing mood, and I went to Universal, and I wrote a picture for Doris Day, the thrill of it all, and another one after that. And But my agent had those 13 scripts in his hand, and it bothered him that they're lying fallow. So he called in Sheldon Lennon and handed him his readies, and Sheldon said, I'd like to meet this guy. And thereupon, the story, <laughs> just Sheldon called me in, and I said, the first thing I said is, Sheldon, I, I don't know what you thought about the scripts, but even if you like them, I said, I don't want to fail with the same material twice. And he said, Carl, by the way, this is a good impression of Sheldon Leonard. Okay. He says, Carl, you won't fail because I'll get a better actor to play you. <laughs> and, and that does said, sound just like Sheldon Leonard. It did. And he, he, he suggested Dick Van Dyke. I flew to New York, saw him in Bye Bye Birdie, and the rest is history. He was... Uh, the most talented human being I know as far as being an actor, dancer, singer, whatever you need, a contortionist if you need one. He is, he's he's a, the most graceful man I know. When you did the uh, Dick Van Dyke show, you decided to end that uh, long before it uh, stopped being successful. I mean, it was still at the height of its success 
when you all decided to to end production of that. But then it went into syndication forever. Yes. I mean, everybody has grown up watching that show. And and I wondered... You know, parenthetically, I was just told, um, somebody said, don't forget to mention, this is very thrilling to me because kids are seeing this show that would never have seen it, but there's now a Blu-ray set of 158 episodes that people are buying and looking at. I have my own grandchildren who never saw it. They're looking at every night. They watch it. And they call me and say, oh, that was so funny, Grandpa. Anyway, this is, uh, this is a legacy that I'm so happy I have. Oh, yeah. But what I'm, two things, really, about that. One is the... Um, the decision to stop it when you stopped it, and this is years before they had the expression in Hollywood, jumping the shark. Um, what, what led to that decision? Say it again. Well, you decided this, the show was still wildly popular. Oh, what, what led it to a stop? Well, yeah. you know, it, we did it in those days. We did a, uh, you know, a, today they do 20 minute half hours. We used to do 28 minute half hours. And and we worked, we we did thirty nine or anywhere from thirty three to thirty nine a season. Now they do twenty a season, fifteen. So at the end of six five years, we had done one hundred and fifty eight shows. We were all worn out, and we were all being pulled in other places. Mary was being pulled into movies. People movie movies uh, studios wanted her. Everybody was. We had done every premise that was worth doing. That I thought we started to copy ourselves a little bit and at the very end i said you know if we go out on our terms we'll go out remembered i said if we start falling off they'll remember the show that didn't make it the last year it fell away so we went off with two or three of the best episodes we did the last two or three episodes were an were really an ending to the show so you knew that there was a finite ending and we actually gave it an infinite ending because the last show was Sheldon Leonard was buying the life of um, Robert Petrie to do a television show about. It was like La Ronde. We, we were <laughs> self-perpetuating ourselves. Coming full circle, sort of. Um, the other aspect of that is the Dick Van Dyke show went into syndication, which is how a lot of my peers you know, experienced it in, in reruns. Um, why didn't that happen with the Sid Caesar shows? Uh, you know, the Sid Caesar shows, I don't know. They never did get that kind of, uh, I don't know if it's because of the times, and they were not on film. We were on film. They were on tape, and I think the quality is not quite the same, uh, even though there are box sets of, uh, of the show shows, mm-hmm. but it, it never got the uh, kind of uh, play that it should have gotten. Um more with comic legend Carl Reiner straight ahead. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. 
now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi. 
www.consumerprotectionnetwork.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with comic legend Carl Reiner straight ahead. One of the things I'm most thrilled about is when we did the Dick Van Dyke show, there were young kids, and I, maybe two, three, four dozen people have come up to me and told me this. They said they were kids when they saw either the original show or the, the reruns of the show, and they said they were fu- these were funny kids, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids, and they all had a comic bone, but they were not uh, interested in being com- com- comedians. But they and they didn't know there was a, such a thing as called a writer for comedy. They thought all comedians made up their own jokes, and right. they said, "Oh my right. God, there's a writers' room where people are writing for a situation comedy." And I must say, maybe four dozen people have come up and said, "I'm a writer because I learned that there's a, a thing called a comedy writer who writes for people on television to do funny things." And it, it, it didn't happen once; it happened dozens of times, and I, I love that. It was an after effect of. Something I didn't expect, but I love it. Now, you actually started out to be an actor. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, how did how did your funny bone grow? Well, I guess I always, being uh, in the, during the Depression, one of the things, one of the pleasures we had in life was listening to the radio. And the, my father built a radio in, in 1927. He built it himself. And we listened to in those days, it was a racist show, but it was called Amos and Andy, but it was quite funny. Mrs. Goldberg, there was a thing called the Goldbergs. But then we started hearing the comic, the comic, the comedians doing shows, the Jack Bennys, the Fred Allens, Joe Penner, uh, the women, uh, there were women comedians, uh, the Loudmouth Harris, her name, I forgot her name. Anyway, we listened to those shows every week. My mother and father took me to the movies to see the Marx Brothers, the Ritz Brothers, and so comedy was a, a very important thing in our lives. That we we knew that laughter is a, is a, is a thing that can only make you feel good. And so I, I grew up knowing that. And when I was young, I never thought I was going to be anything in the business. I got into acting accidentally because my brother saw a when I was I think sixteen or seventeen. I was working as a machinist helper, and he saw an ad in the paper. And by the way, I talked about this at the Library of Congress. I said, I'm in this position today as an actor successful in my business because the government helped me. We're always saying now, get the government off the people's backs or get the people off the government's back. And I said, because the government put me on their back, I'm here today. The WPA had free acting classes at 100 Center Street. And I went there, and a Mrs. Whitmore, an English, old English actress, gave me my first instruction in acting. And I did there for six months, got the first job in a play called the Gilmore Theater, which was a free a free theater. People didn't pay. They came in for nothing. They put whatever they wanted into a, a little basket. And, and I worked for nothing a week for one full year, six shows a night, worked as a machinist helper, got for $8 for that. And I was going to be an actor. There was no question about it. There was... I did a thing called The Bishop Misbehaves, had a fake mustache, not a fake mustache, I grew a mustache and pencil in the part that when I needed. <laughs> but I have pictures of myself 
looking and, and bought a set of tails for ten dollars, which I didn't have, and that was the beginning of my career. One year in the, in the Gilmore Theater, and for somebody saw me there, asked me to come to a summer theater. Another two years in a summer theater, doing twenty-four plays and getting no money for it, but getting room and board. It was a very slow increment. From there, somebody saw me and invited me to go on a tour of Shakespearean repertory company. I did four shows of Shakespeare. I was going to be a serious actor, and I was until the war got me. You know, I'm in the I'm in the uh, army, and I needed a stage. I I liked getting up, so I worked myself up a little comedy act, and I, that's how my comedy started started in the war. And you learned to speak French in the army. Pardon? And, and you learned to speak French in the Army. Yes, they, I went to Georgetown University, and, and they taught me to be a French interpreter and sent me to Hawaii, where all French is not spoken. And, and how much of that do you use in, when you create phony French? Oh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple things in the book that are really taken from that time in my life. I'm uh, proud of being... An author and writing, I remember me, makes it makes this doubly interesting for me. <laughs> well, you've added another uh, another title to your list of titles, and and you've received many many awards and and accolades. Are are you are you getting old enough now that it's easy to hear words like legend and icon when people are referring to you? Well, you know, it's funny, but I think I got a couple of awards lately. Uh, one was from the, uh, the, I don't know, the, the Academy, the Television Academy. One was from the Georgetown University, making me an honor doctorate. And, and the things that were said about me were said out loud by people, you know, who know how to talk. And, and I realized, I, I, even, I think I wrote about it in my book. I said, I now know what people are going to say at my funeral. They're going to say exactly the same thing, except except they won't be saying it to a man sitting on a on a sofa, which I was at one of these events. They'll they're saying it to my face. They'll say it to my urn. I said, <laughs> but they're going to say the same things. It's just going to be in the past tense. Is there? So I've heard my own memorial service. <laughs> <laughs> does that does 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 that make you nervous as as you get older? Do you worry about? Uh... Mortality. Of course you do. As a matter of fact, I was asked by the uh, the people who tw- do tweet and Twitter if I would sit on the uh, uh, watch the watch the Academy Awards, the Oscars, and tweet during the awards. And uh, I tweeted every time something funny occurred to me. And the one tweet that got like thirty-seven thousand hits was when I when I said, and I'm very excited about. Listening to, um, uh, very excited that when they did the memoriam, my name wasn't on it. <laughs> I was excited about being being able to listen that I wasn't on. Anyway, the, the people found that funny as I do. But uh, you do worry when you get to be. I'm going to be 91 next uh, couple of weeks, and uh, you do worry when I walk outside. I say, "Well, what am I going to trip on? Am I going to fall on my head?" You wonder how you're going to go and if you're going to go. But I, I'm trying to. Stay uh, positive. I have a couple of books I'm writing, and one is finished and one is uh, just started. And I said, well, if I have something to do, I can't leave until I finish these things. And you're still doing guest appearances on television shows? 
Pardon? You're still doing guest appearances on television shows. Well, no, I did a couple last year. I did the Hot in Cleveland. I did the Cleveland show. But I think that's that's past now. I think I'm asked to do things, and I think I'd prefer to... uh, not, it takes time. You got to go out of the house. You got to get makeup on. You got to hang around. I would rather hang around the house, and so I can get close to my computer when I have an idea. Well, I, it seems to me that you always have an idea. You should be uh, carrying around a laptop or something. <laughs> yes, I, I, I should. I, oh, by the way, you know something? Somebody just reminded me that uh, uh, my the book I remember me plus. Uh, a million other things are on the uh, ebook. There's an ebook, so everything I, I, I everything I we, that's in the book is in the ebook, and I, I do my uh, I read the book. You know, you can hear me read it. You can also hear me singing, and dancing, and jumping. You can see things on the ebook, uh, things that are not on on the original. Uh, you know. Uh, Hardcover book. Hardcover book does have pictures. I love that part. And and uh, and and I've seen some of the pictures, and they are some real gems. And in the last segment, and and I just I just wanted to say this because it's such a dramatic story that you tell in the book um, about your. Uh, you mentioned that your dad built the radio that you used to listen to the old radio dramas and comedies on, and that would be a little less dramatic to someone like me who's had a chance to read the book knowing that this is a man who gave himself a filling. Yeah, he drilled father, his own tooth and filled it. My father, yeah, he was sitting at his bench. I saw my father every day of, of his life almost until I left the house to go to the Army when I was 20. Uh, 18, I was uh, still living in a house. I was 13 years old, and he's sitting at the bench working as a jewel, as a watchmaker. And I heard a little, he was a stoic. He never made it said ouch or anything like that. But I heard a tsk, tsk, like that. And I looked up, and he's holding something in his hand. He said, look at that. I said, what is it? He says, this silver filling has been in my tooth for 35 years. It just fell out. I said, how do you know how long a tooth has been in your mouth? He said, this one I put in myself. My father actually filled his own tooth. He was in Vienna. And he had gone to a dentist to fill two molars. The guy hurt him so badly, he left. He paid for the one molar left. And he went home, and he said, well, I'm a jeweler. He has jewelry's equipment. He, has a, he got a book on dentistry on how to make facets and, uh, you know, and drill out decay. He learned how to make amalgams of silver and, quick, and, uh, and mercury. And he actually drilled his own tooth and filled it. And it lasted 36 years. That's a, I don't think anybody's ever filled their own tooth. I, I, I can't think of a, of a single one. Um, I, I, anyway, I just, I, th- I just thought that was an amazing story about your dad, and that wasn't the only time that he decided to do something, went out and got a book and, and learned how to do it and did it. Yes. Well, he, he, he was one of these self-taught men. He taught himself when he came from Europe. He bought a violin, a very expensive violin, which my granddaughter is playing now five hundred dollars he paid for it in 1906 so it's worth you know it was a really good violin a beautiful tone and then through the years it's been played by a lot of violinists we lent it to but uh, he taught himself to play the violin by getting a book out of the library learning how to transpose and read uh, read and transpose and uh, did the same thing with a flute he learned to play the violin and the flute and he played them in, in you know in orchestras uh, your charity orchestras he played for years. 
when he, before he married. When he married, then he played for my brother and I, put us to sleep playing lullabies. Anyway, I was I was fascinated about that, and and it got this kind of gets me wondering about when you were working with uh, the the writing staff at uh, the Sid Caesar shows. Um, how much of the 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 stuff that you were doing back then, the the sketch comedy, came out of vaudeville, in in or or were you really breaking new ground? Because a lot of I think that we were breaking new ground because why the show re- resonated so well is that we were talking about the mores of the time, and it was Mel Tolkien, the head writer, who was the one who we kept pushing for. Uh, for what happened in your house today, what happened in your, you know, and we would do stories about our wives, our kids, whatever we're doing, and they were the sketches were usually life sketches about what was going on in the world at that time, and that was unusual. They weren't, they weren't uh, fall-down comedy sketches. Like, there were many, every once in a while we'd give a tip of the hat to Vaudeville and, and Imogene Coke and Sid Caesar would do, like, Niagara Falls, a famous sketch where right. she beats the hell out of him. But that was a sketch <laughs> that was in vaudeville for years. But uh, we t- do a tip of the hat to vaudeville every once in a while. But mainly, it was satire. We did satire on every show that was on television. From from uh, We did one called Break Your Brains, which was a takeoff of the, the $64,000 challenge. We did the This Is Your Life takeoff, which was This Is Your Story. And uh, they were mostly uh, satires, and, and that was a thing that wasn't done on television in those days very much, and certainly not on radio, except a guy named Fred Allen used to do satire on radio, making fun of the times and using the times as a um, barometer of what's funny. And because in a lot of ways, the the, uh, the the shows that you performed in, that, that you worked alongside these, these great writers with, Became the model for shows that we watch now. The thirty plus years of Saturday Night Live, and and uh, there have been some others along the way. Fridays and, and well, the, uh, the show of shows was did have the template for that, and the fi- the finest one that ever came out of it. And by the way, Carol Burnett used to come to the. She was a young student who was living in New York at the time, and she had a friend in the show who sneaked her in to watch rehearsals. We didn't even know she was there. But she honed her craft watching the show of shows do, go through its rehearsals during the week, and she'd go home Saturday to see how it was changed. Of course, it was live then. Where if we were an hour and a half, it was an hour and a half. There was no, no cutting and pasting right. except right before the show. And she did, I think, the, the finest review outside of the show of shows. Her review format, and by the way, she is the single most talented human being that was ever put on earth she was she is extraordinary and the years she spent doing her show were were exemplary you know there has never been anybody like carol but the, the show was shows and then of course saturday night live is is another offshoot of you know of uh, sketch comedy doing current things making fun of satirically talking about we never did politics we didn't have the the uh we didn't have the leave to do that. The networks are very careful about not allowing or not. We didn't even try to do politics. We knew we, we couldn't get away with it. 
You know, you, you mentioned politics, and you are pretty forthright in your book about your political thoughts, just as you were in the last segment talking about the WPA and its impact on you and government support of the arts. And and you mentioned something almost parenthetically about uh, television shows being 28 minutes when you were doing them for uh, Sid Caesar, and now they're down to around 20. And you blame uh, President Reagan for that. Yeah, well, he deregulated the airwaves. You know, the airwaves were regulated, believe it or not, by another Republican, a guy named Herbert Hoover, 1937. He's the one who made, he was a Secretary of Commerce, and he said the airwaves belong to the people. And the pe- the only thing that we sponsors can do is use a minute and a half every half hour to sell their product and 15 seconds for public service announcement. And that stood for him until... Ronald Reagan decided because he had he was friends with uh, the Universal and and Bill and Wasserman and twenty Mule Team Borax and General Electric. They were all his very dear friends, and they could, they could use more commercials. So he deregulated the half hour or the hour. He said, "Many, you know, he cut it down to well, we got that. We're down to twenty minutes now, where we can see we can see uh, all the." Uh, erectile dysfunction things and cheese whiz <laughs> all put together in, one, in a row. You know, you yeah. it, it, only on cable do, do we not get bombarded by ten commercials in a row. Has the proliferation of stations because of, of cable and, and uh, the technology of, of today's television um, has it made it less competitive to do quality work? No, I don't think so. I think the cable keeps us pretty competitive. They, there's an awful lot of good shows that come on. I mean, I watch, uh, there's a few shows I look forward to. I mean, some come from England, like Downton Abbey, but I love Justified. I love the Homeland. Uh, there are a few darling shows uh, with people like Zoe Deschanel, who was so charming, you, you can't not... Watch her, she's so cute. But there are an awful lot of good shows on it, good comedy shows, but you've got to search them out. And I put them on my IT home, and I, I hope there's never, I'm never at a loss for what to watch at night. There's enough good stuff. And, of course, you've got your, your satirist, you've got your uh, John Stewart, your the Colbert Report, Bill Maher, who's just a brilliant commentator. There's enough to watch. There's enough good things to watch, and it's probably most on, on cable. I, I remember um, a, a story you tell in the book about uh, Albert Brooks, oh yeah, <laughs> and in uh, channeling Harry Houdini, yes, and doing the escape artist uh, yeah, thing I'm, in your home. I'm looking out the window of that. I'm looking at the drapes, exactly the drapes that 30, 40 years ago he was struggling behind to get out of. I don't know if we can describe it on the air, but. He was 16 years old. He, by the way, Albert Brooks was a prodigy comedian. No, no kid that age could make adults laugh the way he did. And this particular evening, he was a friend of my son, Robbie, and uh, they went to high school together. And he came to the house one day, and he said, Robbie said, he, he's the world's greatest escape artist, like Houdini. And I said, well, can you demonstrate? And he took a handkerchief, he folded it, and he, he said, tie me up. And I put it over his wrist. He put his wrist together. I was about to tie the bottom. He said, no, no, that's good enough. So now he's standing there with 
just a handkerchief, a rolled-up handkerchief, hanging over his wrist. He's now take take a piece of Kleenex and stuff it in my nose so I can't breathe. And he says, and I don't want you to help me. If you hear me beg you for help, don't help me. I, I stuck the the cleaner. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can't breathe and I can't get out of the thing. I'm going to go behind the curtain. And he went behind the curtain and thrashed around for 20 minutes with with a piece of with a cloth hanging off his arm. <laughs> and, and he's screaming, don't help me, don't help me. And he felt, I, I couldn't, I was laughing so hard I left the room, I was afraid I'd damage myself. And then he finally <laughs> rolled from under the under the drapes, he rolled out to the floor and he sang, "Help me, take, help me, untie me!" And I went over and I lifted the handkerchief off his wrist, and he grabbed his wrist and started to rub him like they had been tied. They hadn't been tied, and he, and now he has his hands free. He could pull the tissue out of his nose, but he says, "Take the thing out of my nose, I can't breathe." And I pulled the tissue out of his nose, and he and he and I, I tell you, the the, the room was exploded with laughter 16-year-old kid I, I when I was reading that that uh that story in the in the book I I was reminded I saw two generations of Brubeck perform and and I remember thinking how great it would have been for you know Dave Brubeck's sons to grow up around a great virtuoso uh musician like Dave Brubeck yes. but but also the musicians that would have come through that house and I and I wondered the same thing about Rob, he's so he's so gifted. Your son, uh, Rob, who you know, everyone knows from All in the Family and and from directing the American President and and uh, you know, I was talking to him so yesterday, many. and and he said something that that uh, he just got a he got a call from somebody, and I said I was going to make the same call. The Prince's Bride was on the other day, and you once it goes on the air, you can't stop watching it. It's the funniest <laughs> movie ever made. And and somebody called him and said, that's the funniest movie. He says, you know, I think it's pretty good. And, and there was a thing in New York where they they had a, a big screening of it, and everybody who everybody who was anybody came out and said, favorite movie of all time. It, re- it really is. It's so every line in it is, is, is a howl, and every performance in it is a howl. My name is Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You remember? <laughs> I know. And and, uh, and 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 what's the word? The, the character actor, the great uh, character actor that he keeps saying, uh, unbelievable or, or. Oh, I, I mean Wally Shawn. Yeah, yeah. I, I I love him in that. Oh, he's wonderful. Yeah, and his logic when he when he drinks the poison, the, the logic he uses. I mean, everything in them. There isn't a scene in that movie you say, move it on. Usually when you watch a comedy, as you've seen before, you say, well, wait till you get to. And there's no way till you get to. You're in, you're in the, the good moments every moment you're watching. More with comic legend Carl Reiner straight ahead. Sumner 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not, is a major factor in dancing like a retard, may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them, also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people, and it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with comic legend Carl Reiner straight ahead. In preparing to visit with you today, I, I was trying to think of a, a, an icebreaker to start the interview, and I was going to say when, when people recognize you um, out in public, do you do they do they come up to you and say you're Alan Brady or you're Rob Reiner's dad. No, you know what they remember me for? <laughs> because I don't look like any of the people I did way back then. If I hadn't done Oceans 11, 12, and 13, yeah. nobody would recognize me. But I'm in the market the other day. says, oh, you're the guy from Oceans. But that's, right. that's who I'm known for. They don't know me from the show shows or from, even from the Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, because that was a different looking guy. I am an old guy without hair. And gray hair, and uh, there's one of my favorite uh, episodes on uh, I Remember Me was my meetings and my two two or three shows I did with Judy Garland, and we talked about celebrity. She had a celebrity corner, and I told her I'm not a celebrity, and I proved it to her by uh, by the by the cab driver who didn't recognize me. No, I never, I never, I never had that kind of people pulling at me or asking for kisses. And who, who was it he mistook you for? He, 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 and you, you ended up the uh, chapter by saying, and and now he thinks that this this uh, other actor, oh, Art Carney, Art Carney, right, is uh, very generous. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, but the funny thing is, that it actually happened that way because he turned around. and He said, "I know you." And at the end, he said, you're Art Carney. I said, no, I'm Carl Reiner. He said, and he said, no, Art Carney. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's going to convince you that he knows who you are better than you do. Yeah, I, That's a great story in there. During the last segment, um, I, I we talked just briefly about you learning French in the war, but you are known for phony languages, phony French, phony Russian, phony German. It came, upon, it came about so naturally I had studied French in the ar- in the army at Georgetown, and when I went, I was invited by Charlie Chaplin Jr., Christopher Chaplin, his son, to come to Veve, Switzerland, to do a benefit for a very important uh, charity. And I said, "Oh, I'd love to." We were living in, and we had spent our summer in in the south of France, so it was no problem to get up there. And I was so thrilled. And the first thing I know, I'm on a radio station, and it's being uh, done in French. And he says, well, we'll ask you your questions in English. I said, no, no. I said, ask him. I'd love to talk French, but I said, but ask him in French and have somebody translate him into English, and I will answer in French. And I had enough French to answer some of the simple questions. And now when, I, when he asked me something like, what is your idea about the new wave? And I had to use some language that, I would have to look up in the dictionary. There were words that I didn't have. So I said, well, the nouveau blog c'est très intéressant parce que dans une société. And then I was trying to say words that I didn't have the French translation for. I said, insofar, 
insofar, I didn't know how to say insofar, so I said it with a French accent, insofar as the difference in the mores of the <laughs> time, and, you, the, and, I, and I talked with a phony French accent, and he, he laughed, and I said, if, if you don't mind, I, I will, and then I had to make a speech out, out in the, ba- the balcony at Bebe for this big charity, and I explained to them that I'm going to make the speech in French, however, when I don't have the word, I will speak English with a phony French accent, and that's what I did. <laughs> and, that, and I and, and so when 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 I came back and I told Mel about it, I said, and we were alone in the house, and I and I said, Mel, I'm going to teach you phony French. He, he didn't speak French, and I said, All right, say after me, the chin, the chin. No, no, not the chin, the chin. <laughs> and then I said, the chick. Say after me, the chick. And he did it almost when and I was getting annoyed with him. I said, say the nose. This is the nose. Say the nose. It's the nose. Not the nose. The nose. And then I said, okay, okay moving on. Now say, I held my finger below my eye and I said, now say the eye. This is the eye. Say after me, the eye. And Mel said, that's not the eye. Uh, yes, is the eye. He said, no, that's below the eye. And he says, this. And he took his finger and he opened his eyelid wide with pulling his lid down with one finger. And he took his index finger and he touched it against his eyeball and said, this is the eye. He actually touched his eyeball. And he's he's hearing his eyes red. And I'm saying, there's a true comedian. There's only two of us in the room. He's doing he did that to make one person laugh. And as I said in the book, luckily for him, the one person he made laugh put it in the treasury of, of wonderful anecdotes. And now the world knows that he's, he's that kind of funny. But I couldn't believe it. He actually touched his eyeball. You tell and a that's great. a comedian. comedian. And, 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 and one, one last story uh, from, from the book about Mel Brooks. And, and I loved this story about a, a a private corporate gig you guys had uh, the two of you had been asked oh, yes, to come yes. perform the 2000 oh, year yeah. old man got big money for it a uh, hundred thousand dollars a piece or something and it all the way the there ever made from anything and it was, it was at the cow palace in, in san francisco and mel was complaining he's why you drag me to these things why and the reason he was complaining i absolutely understood because we were at I would add lib a question, and he would come up with the answer without thinking. He just did it, and he. We were going to use some of the uh, some of the lines from the album, but he knew most of it's going to be wildly ad libbed, and he knew he had to he had to come up with it. And he wasn't sure his brain was going to do it. I was sure, so I wasn't at all nervous. I I could always paste him to a wall. He'll get off the wall. And so, all the way, on the way up, he's saying, I'll never let you talk to me in this again. I'll never, I don't care how much money, I don't care, I'll never let you talk. And, and then we killed him. We, for an hour and a half, at 8 o'clock, we did an hour and a half show. People are screaming, falling out of the balcony. We did another one at 10. Same show, same, not, not the same show, some of the same material because we used some from the record. But all, all the new stuff was different than the first show. And... He and, and he killed. He really killed. And on the way home, he's sitting quietly in the back of the car, and we're with my nephew agent George Shapiro and and our, our, our literary agent Dan Strone, 
and, and Mel is so quiet. We're talking nicely. And I finally say to him, Mel, knowing the reaction that we got today, how much money would you have taken to do this gig? And he said, $14. And he meant it. <laughs> Otherwise, he would have done it. For, instead of saying, I do it for nothing, because that kind of that kind of uh, claim washes over you. It's good for your soul. We, <laughs> we both of us, you know, had enough money to live with, so we didn't need, particularly need it. But but him saying fourteen dollars, I said, is is the comic mind in him? Fourteen dollars is funnier than I do for nothing. And and, and I guess just on a uh, final note, I want to let people know that you have a website. Oh, I do. And and that's a good place. To, you know, to get a link, to find the book, to keep track, to see when you're, you know, the books that you're working on are coming out, and and what is the website, sir? I think it's at Carl Reiner. I, I, I'm not sure. You know, I wish the guy well, was. Anyway, but the other thing is that the uh, the ebook is, uh, you know, Amazon has all that information, I guess. Well, it's been a real treat uh, ha- having you on the show, and uh, you're welcome here anytime. Book, okay. book I, promoting I really, or not? I really appreciate you giving me all this time, and I, I'm, I'm aware how much time costs. <laughs> time is costly. Thank you very much, and uh, and 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 thanks for the memories. Oh my! Listen, my pleasure. All right. I'll give you a two-word joke. You want a two-word joke to leave? Absolutely. A man says to a woman, "Would you rather be beautiful?" Or stupid. She thinks for a moment. She says, stupid. Beauty fades. <laughs> oh, that's and it brilliant. Only takes, it takes just the amount of time you took to laugh, yep. to, to play it over. Oh, so I'll be stupid all my life. Yeah, you, you're <laughs> laughing. I, I, if you didn't laugh uh, 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 for another minute, I would have been very upset. <laughs> I wouldn't have left you hanging. All right, you have a great day, and thanks again so much, Carl Reiner. What a uh, what a brilliant man and a uh, a fun read. I highly recommend it. We'll have uh, more of the Tom Sumner program right after. Yeah.
Alexander Zajic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 